in a series of messages that begins today going through the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, you can join us in 1 Peter. Uh, pro tip, if you get to Hebrews, you just got to go a little bit to the right. If you get to Revelation, just go a little to the left. So if there's blood coming out of someone's eyes, you're too far. <laughs> but if there's someone named Melchizedek running around, you're not, you haven't gone far enough. All right, that's a cheesy church joke. Now we will begin. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 12 to start our time together. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Don't let it not be true, right? <laughs> Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, AKA our lives. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, no big deal. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Oh, FYI, even the angels long to look into these things. And with that mind-blowing detail, we'll conclude our time reading the scripture today. But just let me give you two seconds to just praise God like you should after reading. And Jesus, Jesus, we thank you for <clears throat> even what happens in our hearts when we read your word publicly, when we just declare what you've given to us. You had, you had Peter just send this message to this church, but you intended for it to be read to all churches. And so as we sit here today reading words that were blessing people a couple thousand years ago and have touched the hearts of every generation that's followed Jesus from then till now, we tremble just realizing what we're a part of and how much you care about us and how much of a plan you have for our lives. And we pray for these few precious moments that we can't help but uncover a few of the amazing stones. We're, we're literally in a, a cave full of treasure, just picking up one thing. We could, we could spend our time, our entire time on in any one of the things we would talk about for a moment. Thank you that we have these weeks as a church community and 
a greater online community and television audience that thank you for the weeks that we have of the series that we can really dedicate ourselves to these truths so that each day we can live it out more. And we just pray for transformation in our lives and our hearts. And we pray that if anyone has come into this moment not knowing you, without God, without hope in this world, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. We pray for doors to be opened up to, to following Jesus today. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. I'm calling this series of messages and, I'm, and this introduction as well, Dawn is Coming. Dawn is Coming. That's the title of the series. It's the title of this new record. It's the title of this message, Dawn is Coming. Because that's really what Peter's saying here. Peter's talking to some people who are going through some hard stuff and he's saying, hey, Dawn is Coming. He's like, I know it's dark now, but dawn is coming. I know it's scary now. I know it's cold now, but dawn is coming. I know you feel alone now. I know you, you feel like you're not seen now, but the sunrise is going to come and with it healing in his wings. When the sun of righteousness arises, dawn is coming. There's a, there's a sunrise coming. The day is going to break. It's always coldest just before dawn. It's always darkest just before dawn, but, but dawn is coming. Don't give up now. Don't lose heart. The sun is going to shine again. That's the message that Peter wants to communicate. Now, it would be wise for us to just take a moment before we go any further and just sort of like get our bearings. We're going to be spending these weeks in this book, so there's no rush, but to take just a little bit of our time and, and just acknowledge where we're at in the flow of the Bible, where we're at in the flow of, of history would be wise. Um, who, who this book is written by is given in the first verse. I mean, it, he literally says in the, in the first verse, Peter, and that's classic Peter, right? Like, hey, what's the first word? Peter? <laughs> but it's for a reason. Because in the old day, they would read scrolls. It wasn't like an email where you see the sender right as you look at it. If you're unrolling a scroll, the last thing that would be written would be literally the last thing you would, we would unroll. So if they signed off like we sign off from so-and-so, sincerely so-and-so, XOXO, so-and-so, right? With a heart for the eye, above the eye. That's how I, that's how I write Levi, uh, heart above the eye. If, if you did it like we did it, you'd have to unroll the whole thing to know even if you wanted to read it. And has anybody noticed that the spam mail is getting trickier by the hour? I deduced the other day, the more official it looks, the less important it is. Because the stuff that's actually important, the stuff that actually matters, it just, it just shows like without ceremony, without pomp, without service, like it lo totally looks fake. But the stuff that looks like if you don't open this right now, you're going to die, that's usually the stuff that's like, you know, add $1,000 to your line of credit. You know what I'm saying? Like it's the worst stuff, but it looks so legit. My wife's always coming like, oh my God, this is so important. I'm like, that is such spam. By the way, uh, <laughs> do you see the little thing right there? It's like in small print, like not real, right? Totally. They want you to think it's from the Secretary of State and it's official business, but, but they're getting better. Uh, you, you wanted to know who it's from to know if you should listen to it. So they would always, you'll notice this, the letters almost always begin with I, Paul, or I, Peter, because that's going to be noteworthy to a first century Christian audience. Like, that, Peter? Because Peter, the author, this dude, this dude was with, his role, he rolled with Jesus we are reading a letter written by a guy who was not only an apostle, who was like the apostle. Right. He was, he was, well, A.W. Chozer says, Peter was a bundle of contradictions. And that's true. <laughs> a bundle of contradictions. That's going to be the title of my autobiography I'm going to write one day, right? <laughs> a bundle of contradictions. You're like, what do you mean? I mean this. He was the first to confess Jesus, but he was also the first to deny him. 
Peter, Peter was a man who we know had a mother-in-law, but we never meet a wife. Like, wait, 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 hi, but why the, how does that work, right? Peter, Peter, Peter was the, the, the one who Jesus signaled out as blessed. He said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now Bar means son of. Simon, son of Jonah. His real name was Simon. He's confusing. He had a, he had a bundle of contradictions, right? I thought your name is Simon. My name is Peter. Jesus changed his name the day he blessed him. But then five minutes later, he called him the devil, right? So I was like, wait, how, how, how? But he was with Jesus. They say never meet your heroes. You can't help but be a little bit disappointed, disillusioned, the image of what you think they're like, and then you meet them and you find out what they're really like. The closer Peter walked with Jesus, the more he worshiped him, the more he honored him. He was there when Jesus appeared in the upper room. He was there. He walked with him. He, he, he lived with him. He did life with Jesus. He disappointed Jesus and was disappointed by Jesus. But at the end of the day, he worshiped him as God because he couldn't help but deny that Jesus had risen and he would spend his entire life to his last breath preaching the gospel of the kingdom even when it cost him everything which by the way wouldn't be very long because he wrote this book around 62 to 64 AD 30 years after Jesus rose and he would be dead inside of five years church history tells us Peter was martyred for his faith 67 AD inside the city of Rome where he was crucified. But just before the crucifixion, he begged and pleaded with his tormentors to please flip his cross upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die in the exact same manner his Lord did. So he wanted it to be slightly different. So he died with the blood rushing to his head, crucified upside down for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So these people getting a letter from a dude who like them, was a bundle of contradictions and yet still worship Jesus, they're gonna read it. It's gonna be put to the top of the, of the pile. Like this, this letter is muy importante, right? Because it, it was written by the author Peter. Let's examine now the audience. The author, the audience. The audience was churches in five regions. And in verse one, if you look at it again, we find out the different regions he's writing to. People who are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Great, great, <laughs> don't care. Oh. This is a parts of, the, of, of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and they all were a part of the Roman Empire. That's the specific audience, but it's bigger than just the specific audience for the intention was by the Holy Spirit for this to be scripture, bigger than just the people individually who read it, and eventually to all Christians or those who, as the text tells us, were scattered strangers who in this world were going to suffer hardship. Scattered strangers. You see two of the three right here in first, the first verse again. He writes to those in Cappadocia, Galatia, Pontus, who are scattered and strangers. And then from the following verses, we find out that these were people who suffered. All three of these are descriptors that line up with everybody who's a Jesus follower. Sometimes we feel scattered. You feel like, I'm the only Christian in my work. I'm the only Christian in my neighborhood. I'm the only Christian in my, my school. It's that, first of all, it's likely that's not the case. God probably has other people who you don't even realize are in there. But secondly, if you feel scattered, that's the point. Right. If you feel a little isolated, that's the point. Here we are right now. What are we? We're assembled. Right. We're gathered. 
we're the church drawn together who are, all of us who are in this moment are heeding the biblical admission, admonition to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Good job. Here we are in the salt shaker. We can't stay here. That's to try and live like we're already in heaven. But the point is more people in heaven. So for that to happen, the salt's got to get out of the salt shaker, scattered into the world, scattered into your workplace, sent out on mission to those who are Jesus followers, scattered into the world, into the hospital, into the, the law profession, into the, the, the mechanics shop, everywhere we go, anywhere and everywhere, living on mission to live excellently, to live gloriously, to live imperfectly, but to follow Jesus scattered into the world, intentionally so. We don't do any good to each other when all we, when all we are is around each other. Plus, that's when we get in real fights anyway. Remember when you used to have like slumber party, slumber party, slumber party, then you hated your best friend, right? <laughs> it's, it's good that we get a break. It's like, I'll see you on Tuesday at small group. I'm going away, right? It's like, that's fantastic. We, yes, this is amazing, but if this is it, if all we try and do is, is build a life insulated by people who believe like we believe, we'll never have the chance to influence and impact like we're meant to. Scattered, strangers. Strange because as we follow Jesus, we're going to look strange, for sure. Think about the early church, born in the Roman Empire, where the bed was loose and money was stingy. In, in the Roman Empire, there was a stinginess on money, but a looseness on the bed. Right? I mean, it was commonplace to get invited to a dinner party, knowing full well after dessert there was going to be a literal orgy. We've had dessert, now we're all jumping into bed. It was loose with your bed. Your wife was just for your heir. Prostitutes and priestesses were for sexual pleasure. It was, it was a very different time uh, when, it, when, it, when the church all of a sudden showed up and the, the message was, hey, be stingy with your bed and be generous with your finances. Be open, be willing to share, have that spirit. But then when, you're, when it comes to your bed, keep that for your spouse. Like, I, let me write that down. That is crazy. I, no more prostitutes. I, I, this wildest thing. Man, this is crazy. This is Jesus stuff, wild, right? Complete, read the book of Corinthians sometime. It's like completely like revelatory news. You shouldn't sleep with people that are not married to. Right? It's like, uh, okay, like, nobody? Man, that's going to be different. Um, you're going to be called a stranger if you follow Jesus, for sure. But that's not the only sense in which we are strangers. Because the actual word stranger in the Greek means an exile living far from home. Someone who's in exile living far from home, like a refugee. Someone who ends up living somewhere else, that's not their homeland, that's just where they're at currently. Their homeland is not where they are, that's us. Because the moment we became believers, our home is heaven, which eventually is gonna come to this earth. The final format of heaven is not a cloud somewhere, it's on this recreated planet, made perfect by God's power, run by his glory, that's all to come in the book of Revelation, just after the bleeding from the eyes. It gets worse before it gets better, okay? So not everybody wants him to reign, but he wins in the end. Spoiler alert, okay? So heaven fully and finally is our home. That means currently this world is not our home, but we live here. What are we? Exiles far from home, strangers. And to the extent that we forget our true homeland, we'll make mistakes in the place where we're currently living. We must remember we're on assignment here. We're ambassadors here. We have the power of our homeland to offer that citizenship to anybody and everybody who would believe. There's room at the table. There's room in the embassy, so to speak. We're scattered so that we might effectively live as strangers. Oh, and while we're trying to do those two things that are all super hard, we're going to experience suffering. 
God bless you. Have a great week, right? <laughs> Jesus said, hey, you want to follow me? I'm about to get crucified. It's not going to be great, but I'll send you my spirit, right? This is literally like how, how, he, how he signed off. He said, the world hates me. They're going to hate you. It's going to be wicked hard, but it's going to be rad in the end. So keep going and don't give up. You're going to experience suffering. And when it happens, don't look like, like, did something go wrong? No, this, that, that was the plan from the beginning. Hardship. Why? Because this is a broken world. He didn't want it to be broken in the first place. We broke it, not him. He's the one seeking to fix it, right? So we're not mad at God for the hardship. God didn't want the hardship. And that's why he's, he, he warned us. We brought it in. We brought sin in. We experienced the result of our sin and other people's sin. Our sin and other people's sin. And as we do so, we know he's seeking to work all things to, to the end that he intends. So as we experience suffering, we can take heart. Peter wrote this book to people in those specific five cities and ultimately to every Jesus follower because he knew what we need to know. Hardship is coming. Difficult days are coming. Some of you are like, they're here, they're here. They got here early. They came to my house. Okay, so good. You're perfectly suited to read this book. If your life is hard right now, if you're experiencing trials right now, if you're dealing with grief right now, if you look at your life and it's not what you wish it was, on a little level or on a massive level, you are perfectly suited for what God has for you in this Dawn is Coming series. But if your life is good right now, you should also know difficult days will come. And Peter knew that better than anybody because he had just watched his friend Paul put to death under Caesar Nero in Rome. His, I mean, can you imagine? Paul was decapitated, head cut off with an ax, we believe. Peter saw that happening. He knew the writing was on the wall for him. And he wasn't wrong. It wouldn't be five years before his own crucifixion. And I think Peter, who was in Rome, by the way, we'll see that by the end of the book, although he calls it Babylon, he had to sort of write in code, not knowing who would be reading his mail, what spies along the way would be hearing this. And lest he get accused of bad-mouthing Rome, he calls it Babylon, which also has prophetic symbol, uh, significance. We'll get there, we'll get there, we'll get there, come back. Um, but as, as, as it goes on, you, you, you'll read, he wrote it from Rome, and he there, close to the fire, knew that things were, were, were not going to bode well for Christianity and the Roman Empire. Because Caesar called himself Lord, and Jesus called himself Lord, and push was going to come to shove. Indeed, massive waves of imperial persecution under Nero, under Hadrian, under Trajan, under Diocletian. These Roman emperors were going to just wave after wave of hardship for Jesus followers. At the most brutal extent would be, of course, the Colosseum. I know it's rad to get some pasta and see it, but there were Christians who were murdered there for, follow, for nothing other than following Jesus. Caesar Nero was such a, I mean, you go to Europe today, there's a literal coffee shop called Nero. Go and get an espresso. You can't get a black coffee because they don't drink coffee in Europe, right? If you want to get, or like an Americano, they call it like, you know, anyhow. Um, <laughs> it's different. It's, it's some better, but it's different. So, so you, you, you have a coffee shop. I, when I saw it for the first time, it so jarred me. Because Nero would have Christians lit on fire to light up his garden parties. This is Nero, who killed Paul, who will kill Peter. And Peter's letting them know, hey, trial, hardship's going to, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But here's this book, which he tells them, and all you're going to face, here's the key word to the book of 1 Peter, ready? Triumph. 
G. Campbell Morgan put it this way. He said, he said the, the great theme of this little book is that the Christian life is a life of triumph. <laughs> Says the guy who's about to get crucified upside down? Yeah, strike me down. I'll become stronger and more powerful than you could ever possibly imagine. Come on, Darth Vader. Uh, you, you think about like, Peter, Peter's like, try me. See what, see what you got. Hit me with your best shot, right? I mean, the Christian life is a lot. In your pain, in your hardship, in your difficulty, this letter says, dawn is coming. Glory is coming. God has a plan. Nero can't stop it. Satan can't stop it. The world can't mess with it. That's, that's the message of 1 of Peter. Because listen to me, trials are temporary, but triumph is forever. Yeah. Trials are temporary, but triumph is forever. That's what he wants them to see. He wants you and I to understand that the hardships we face must be put into perspective by viewing them through the lens of eternity. What, what, what do we have to triumph in? Uh, it's a long list. I narrowed it down to four, but reading it, we could have come up with 50. And the four things that I jotted down was A, new life, the triumph of new life, that when you believe in Jesus, there's, a, there's, a, there's something so violently that changes inside of you, it can only be compared to a baby being born. Yeah. It's not exactly that, but it's so like that. It's the closest possible comparison. Something new is born inside of you. And this is possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He anchors the new life in the resurrection together. He talks about how we have new hope, new birth, a living hope, only because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So this is where we anchor our faith. We don't go, well, you know, the Old Testament, and da, 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 da. It's like, no, no, Jesus rose. That's why we believe the Old Testament, because the fulfillment of all the promises. Because Christ rose, I know I have new life. Because Christ rose, I have this living hope. You could put it this way. Because we have a living Lord, we have a living hope. Our hope is not dead because our Savior is not dead. So new life, and we're grateful for it. N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, and I love this. He said, becoming a Christian means that what God did for Jesus at Easter, he does for you in the very depth of your being. Come on, thank God for a second for the new life that's inside of you. You have your own personal Easter in your spirit, and you're going to one day have your own personal Easter in your body. I'm thankful for B, the fact that we don't just have new life, we also have uh, the, the, the promise of uh, a deepening in hardship. God deepens us in our pain. He talks about coming out of the, the smelter like gold. Gold gets put into the, the refiner's fire. It only comes out more pure. It only comes out more clear. It only comes out more valuable because of the fire. You have permission, just like Jesus who suffered, and that was the precursor to glory. Suffering always leads to glory in God's hand. Now, we don't look at that like in a sadomasochistic way, like, oh, the more difficult I can make my life, the better I'm going to be. Of course not. Don't be ridiculous. But when you face hardship, what you can believe is God is going to supersede what the enemy means, and your hardship is going to be like the flame that touches the gold that causes it to be purified, that causes it to be strengthened. You're going to be deepened by your trial. Not only will you not keep the hardship forever, it can't touch you in heaven, but what it's going to produce in you, you will get to keep. That's just punk rock. So my hardship, like my wheelchair, my chronic headaches, the stressful the battle with depression, I'm not keeping you in heaven. There's not going to be Xanax in heaven. 
There's not going to be my doll in heaven. Hello, right? There's not going to be moodiness in heaven. But what God, if you'll lean into him and not run away from him, if you'll lean into him and not drown, it, drown yourself, if you'll lean into him, he'll deepen you. He'll make you sweeter. He'll make you more like Jesus in your difficulties. There's a deepening and there's a new life. And there's also this, the fact that in our relationship with Jesus, we have access to joy anytime we want it access to joy. And that access is, is even more important when your life is really hurting. What does that access look like? It looks like praise and it looks like worship. What do we mean? He says, you have salvation, which has triggered something that you can praise him in the midst of. I know you now praise him and that leads to joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Or as the Passion Translation puts it, through believing in him. You are saturated with an ecstatic joy, indescribably sublime, and immersed in glory. Come on, somebody. There's, there's a power, and this, is, this, this I've experienced firsthand, on your hardest day, on your most challenging day, when you praise him when you feel like cursing, when you praise him when you feel like falling over and dying, when you praise him when you're mad at him and you don't understand what he's doing, but you praise him anyway, and you say, you're God, not me. I trust you. I honor you. I worship you. You, you give and you take away. Blessed be the, I'm telling you something wells up inside of you. It's, be, it's better than happiness. It's joy. It's joy inexpressible. It's joy indefinable. It, it's peace that passes understanding. It's saturated in glory and it's sublime. So we have these wonderful things that we're given. We're also promised that we're in the will. That's great. That's always great, right? You're in the will. We're in the will? Yeah. He says, you have an inheritance. You don't just get salvation. He's like, went ahead and put you in the will. Only unlike a normal will, this will is not triggered by death. It was triggered by resurrection. Right. Un unlike a normal will, because a normal will, you, you, <laughs> once you know you're in the will, you know there's going to be a fight. You're going to be fighting with all the other people who are also in the will, right? This is different because this will doesn't divide sons and daughters. It creates sons and daughters. We're not drive, driven away from our family because of the will. We're driven into a family because of the will. Oh, oh, it's better, it's better, better, it's better. Listen, like, like a normal will is only about belongings. What did I get? What did I get? What did I get? This will is about belonging. It's about having a place where we belong. It's about having a relationship with a father we can run to in difficulty. We got a will. And, 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 and here's the other cool thing. Normally, when there's a will, here's what you are guaranteed. You have to tiptoe around the person until they die because you might get ridden out of the will. How about this? We don't have to worry about trying to put a nice face on our life because when we were at our worst, he wrote us into the will. When we were dead in sins, Christ died for us. He saw you at your worst. He loves you still. He knows what's inside your, your skeletons in your closet, and he cares for you. You can never earn his favor. You can never earn his love. He, he has seen the worst things you've done, the worst thoughts you've had, and he's written your name on his hand. He loves you. He wrote you into his will. There's an inheritance. It's a wonderful thing. And those are just four tiny little previews of the coming triumphs that are ours as we follow Jesus. But where I want to leave you as we begin to wind our time down is with this thought. Yes, it's great that the sun is going to rise. And by that, we, of course, are talking about the return of Jesus or us dying and standing before Jesus. Hey, dawn came. Awesome. But I'm not trying to tell you that the book of 1 Peter is pretty much just, hey, life sucks, but don't worry, because you're going to die someday, and it'll be great. 
awesome. Because <laughs> Monday's coming. You know what I'm saying? It's like, that's great. If I can just suffer through the next 50 years, I too will get my own personal cloud, right? It's like, thanks, thanks, preacher. That's, that's the kind of lofty stuff that, that we've been given that has led to uh, lives of desperation and, and perhaps even at its worst, suicidal thoughts. When I say Donna's coming, I don't just mean it as a noun, I mean it as a verb. Dawn is a noun for sure. The sun rose, the dawning of a new day, right? Yes, that's dawn. But dawn can also be a verb. And when it's a verb, it's not something that happens in front of you. It can be happen, something that happens inside of you. When you say that dawned upon me, something I didn't see before. When I say dawn is coming, what I'm truly hoping you'll see is, yes, heaven will be triumphant when we get there, but God wants to do something in us while we're here. He wants something to dawn upon you, only it's not the breaking of a brand new day. It's the revelation of a brand new way, a brand new way to be human, a brand new way to approach hardship, a brand new way to approach fatigue and to approach trials and to approach relationships, and to approach money, and to approach everything we handle. God wants you not just to have life after death, but life during life too. And I jotted down four quick things that will help you uh, to move closer to dawn. Not just dawn that you're going to see when you die, but dawn that that could all of a sudden come upon you, where you realize something you didn't realize before, where nothing in your life has to change for something inside your heart to change. Number one, name your pain. Name your pain. This is where you're honest. When you're in trial, name it. Be clear about it, be specific about it, and tell God about it. Don't try and say, oh, this is great. It's not. It's not. Tell him. But, but as, you're, as you're naming your pain and being specific about your trial, I want you also to put it in perspective. How do you put it in perspective? You don't just stop at examination. You end with comparison. Examination is where you look at your trial but you're never gonna describe your trial as little when you examine it outright. Only when you compare it to the glories that God wants to work in our lives now and forever does it become small. A flat tire could ruin your whole day unless tomorrow you leave for a two week vacation in Carmel, California. Then you're like, flat tire? Not even a big deal. I'm so excited about this trip. When we think about the glory that God has for us, the glorious future and now that God wants for us, the trials become little, not by examination, but through comparison. And that's called perspective. So name your pain, but be clear that it's a little trial, even if you have to keep it your whole life. It's a little trial when you compare it to forever. Secondly, walk it off, walk it off. I mean that in three different levels. I mean it literally, metaphorically, and vicariously. Literally, in your trials, walk it off, y'all. Go for a walk. One of the best things you can do for your heart is just to go on a walk. Walk it off, walk it out, walk it off, walk it out. This hurts right now, God, I'm frustrated. When our daughter who went to heaven uh, six years ago, who today, by the way, is her birthday, she'd be 12 years old, Linnea would be 12 today. The most helpful times came in my relationship with Jesus walking to this present day. Walk it off, walk it out, literally. Metaphorically too though, your relationship with Jesus is to walk. So walk with him, walk with him, walk walk with him, walk with him. And vicariously, 
Walk your relationship with God out vicariously by putting yourself into other sandals. And the text tells us who, too. Prophets from the Old Testament and angels. So when you feel like complaining about what's hard right now, just remember there were people who lived and died and all they did was dream about a relationship with God like you have. And living on the other side of the cross like we do and living with the spirit in us like we have and understanding the revelation that they prophesied about vaguely describing an elephant they were only touching a piece of, we get the whole enchilada right here because we got the revelation of scripture and we have God in our breast. And that'll put it in perspective. What you wish you could get rid of, other people would give anything just to get a taste of. And the angels desire to look into these things, which I don't even know what to make of it, other than to go, okay, uncle, I'll quit complaining, because it's special. And of course, to be clear, the prophets and the angels aren't saying they, they wish they had the hard things we face. They're saying they wish they could have the, what the hard things are gonna produce in us. When he talks about Christ being revealed, you're gonna worship in glory and praise him when Christ is revealed. It's not just when you stand before him, it's when he's revealed in your character. Christ is seeking to form and fashion you into himself. And that's what the angels are desirous to be. They weren't made in God's image, we are. And to the extent that we walk with him, we get to become like him. Then, number three, write this down. Until dawn comes, act as though. Act as though. Act as though you had a freaking clue why God would let you hurt like you hurt. Act as though you understood. Because the Bible says one day we will know even as we are known. One day we will understand the secret things that belong to God. One day we will, we will know why he let this happen in the Bahamas. Why he let that happen in the school shooting. Why he let that happen in your family. Why he let that happen in my home. I don't know. I'm not God. There's a day I'll know. Right now I'm going to act as though I did. And if I knew, I'd just praise him. And since I don't know, but I will know, right now I'll just choose to praise him. I'm just going to take a second and trust him. I'm just going to live my life out and follow him. I'm just going to believe that he has a plan. And he, I'm going to act as though I knew I'm going to be an early adopter because the most beautiful colors don't come at sunrise. They come before sunrise. They don't come when the sun's up. Then everything's seen in beautiful, brilliant light. The most beautiful colors exist when you, when you don't have a sun yet, but it's on its way. And when we act as though we understand and we just praise him like we will then. The brilliant colors of dawn will show up inside our lives and inside of our relationships. Lastly, almost done. Got to deal with the slack. There is the matter of the slack to be dealt with. The slack in the line. You see, he says, hope is like an anchor. We have a living hope. And Hebrews connects the dots and tells us the hope that we have is like an anchor for our soul. And the anchor for our soul is connecting us to heaven. We have a connection to heaven. It's sure and steadfast. This anchor enters into the veil and we are connected. But listen to me, the amount of slack you allow in the line of your soul is up to you. And the thing that we can do that can reel in the slack in the rope and help us feel the tug of heaven's hope. Oh, I'm preaching like Dr. Seuss on a Sunday. <laughs> is praise and belief and trust and honor. You see, we're exiles living far from home. 
We were given God's breath in the Garden of Eden. And when we praise God, our feet aren't there yet, but we allow our breath to go home because the Bible says our praise enters into heaven like smoke rising up from incense. So there's a sense in which we get to go home in our praising God, our worshiping God, our honoring God. It allows, so to speak, our hearts to, to have what we want most, our time with God. And that's gonna lead to the joy inexpressible and full of glory. And what we're gonna want to do when we feel that is immediately pivot and minister to the hurting world like we should. That's a big part of this, dealing with the slack, acting as though all of that, it's, it's an act of worship before God that then leads us to wanting to reach out to this world. I like how Warren Wearsby put it. He said in his commentary on 1 Peter, this hope does not put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace and on the battlefield and keeps us going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. He said, hope is not a sedative, it is a shot of adrenaline. Come on, somebody, we're looking for a Holy Ghost shot of epinephrine. We're gonna let our praise rise. We're gonna reel the slack in and that's gonna make us wanna scatter and go and reach and touch and love. Let me end with this. There was a man who went to a yard sale in Nashville, Tennessee, and he found, among other things, a yellowed, rolled up piece of parchment, distressed and made to look with a patina of age as though it came from antiquity. And so he purchased it and he unfurled it, and it was a replica of the Declaration of Independence. And he thought, that's fun. I'll put that up my garage. And he put it up on the wall in his garage and there it stayed for 10 years where he would tinker and kind of handyman. He was a pipe fitter, but he would fix bicycles. And there it was in the garage till he got engaged. And when him and his wife were trying to consolidate their two lives together into one house, she said, you are a pack rat and a lot of what you own needs to go if I'm coming to live in this house. And one of the things as they went through all the items in their garage was to stay or go, stay or go, stay or go. Does it bring you joy? S smell it, hold it to your heart, roll your socks. I get it, right? And so he came up, he pointed to the Declaration of Venice, stay or go. Like, oh my, yeah, you can't choose between me and my country. He said, go. Took it down. If mama ain't happy, no one's happy. Takes it down. Couldn't throw it away. So he donated it to a thrift store in downtown Nashville, Music City Thrift Store where a man named Michael Sparks, a few days later was rummaging through the bin and in the bin of posters came across this yellow patina rolled up document, at which point he unfolded it and realized this is a declaration of independence. And the label says it's $2 and 20 some cents. That's a bargain and goes ahead and buys it. A few days later, a friend says, bro, that doesn't look like it was fake, you know, lemon juice and, you know, a flame. This is not like a, you know, this is, you should check this out. So in an antique type roadshow environment, he has it verified and turns out it's one of 200 copies of the Declaration of Independence that John Quincy Adams commissioned to be made in the year 1820 and spread out across the world. And he, the man, Michael Sparks, sold it for over $400,000. Not bad for a $2 thrift. When this, of course, breaks out in the news in Nashville, you can guess who heard about it. <laughs> the original owner, a man named Stan Caffey, 
who had a $400,000 copy of the Declaration of Independence in his garage for a decade. What I am glad I did not get to witness was the conversation between him and his wife that night. But what I can tell you with absolute conviction is this man will never throw anything away ever again, regardless of what his wife says. All right. Here's the point. When I stand before God in heaven, I don't want to find out that I had the power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead that could have saved anybody I would have showed love to. I don't want to find out I had it sitting on the wall in my garage my whole life. I want to do something about it. I want to reach out with the love of a Savior who reached out for me. I'm in the will. You're in the will. Come on, let's live beautifully and reach out to other people who aren't yet named in the will in Jesus' name. And Father, we wind our time down. We want to acknowledge that some people are hurting in a real serious way right now, grieved by various trials today that don't feel little. And we believe you want your dawn to come upon us for us to see things differently. We don't want to see sunrise just as an event that we could witness, but something you could do in the way we see the world. If you're here today at every location and you're hurting, there's some painful thing you're dealing with today and you need help with it. You need God's help to deal with it. Could I just ask that you would raise up your hand? Just being honest, this is hurting right now. This is bad right now. This is hard right now. This is more than I can bear. God, help us to see these things through the lens of eternity. But not just in a longing to get to heaven one day kind of way, but in a seeking to live out here right now kind of way. We want your touch. We want your power to be strangers who are suffering scattered throughout this world. You can put your hands down. I wanna give an invitation now for anybody who's here with us and you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never received that precious gift of salvation that was bought for you at the cross. If you're here and you would say, Levi, I wanna give my life to Jesus. I wanna be saved. I wanna be born again. I wanna go to heaven when I die, yes, but I wanna live with life while I live. If that's you, I'm describing church online, every location. I want you to say this prayer with me. The Bible says, if you confess with your sins and believe in your heart, the gospel, you will be saved. So right now, say this, mean it in your heart. God will hear you. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't fix myself, but I believe you can. Come into my life and make me new. I give myself to you. In Jesus' name I pray. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you just said that prayer, dedicating your life to God or rededicating your life to God, I wanna give you a moment in time to nail that down. I'm gonna count to three. And when I get to three, I want you to shoot your hand up in the air saying, that was me, that was real, that just happened. One, two, three, shoot your hands up, shoot your hands up. You said, I just got born again. Come on, praise God for everybody raising your hand up. We see you, God bless you, you can put your hands down. Amazing.